0: It's Q&A time, where I'm going to answer questions about solo 401ks, tax gain harvesting, bond funds and targeted funds, and more in this, the 83rd episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes. Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now, here's your host, Andy Panko. Oh, hi, everybody. Thanks for joining. So happy you're here. This is the first in the uh, Q&A series or editions of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast Reboot, where I'll be doing one of these a month. My plan is to try to stick to a consistent schedule where the fourth Wednesday of the month will be a Q&A episode. For those that are interested in asking cues so I can hopefully provide the A's, you can send me an email at andy at and I will uh, hopefully get to, your, get to your question at some point. Before I get into it, though, uh, let, me, um, let me just tell you, some people these days are just too judgmental. I can tell by looking at them. <laughs> Thank you. you. You're too kind, really. You're too sweet, too kind. Let me give you one more, because that one uh, wasn't the best. I think it's good, but wasn't the best. Let's see. What else do we got here? Uh, how about this one? How about this? All right, let's 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 see what this does. Yesterday, one of my good friends told me I often make people uncomfortable by violating their personal space. It was a really hurtful thing to say. It completely ruined our bath together. No, you didn't like that? No, okay, never mind. Moving on. That's the dad jokes for today. So yes, today is a q and episode, I have three questions that were sent in specifically for this podcast. And time permitting, I'll try to keep this to under 45 minutes, sometimes I can run on but time permitting, there are a couple other things, uh, a couple other questions I came across in other forums, other venues that I thought were worth bringing up here, because I'm sure many of you may have had similar questions or, or think similar things. So uh, without further ado, let me get into the three questions that were sent ahead of time, and see where they take us. So first, this is from Smitty. Smitty from the villages. He says, "Hello, Smitty." Smitty starts by saying, "I'm glad to hear your podcast is coming back!" Exclamation point! I've been following your work since episode number five. First of all, Smitty, thank you. Second of all, what the heck? What happened to the first four episodes? You no, know? weren't for you. Didn't listen to them. No, j- just kidding. So thank you for uh, for for listening from the early days of the podcast. I'm glad to hear. There's been a lot of support. Uh, from from people who who said you know they're they're happy the podcast is back so thank you very much for that. Samiti goes on to say, over the last few years I've been doing Roth conversions from my 401k to my Roth IRA. Ever since my balance increased above 250 thousand dollars in my 401k, I was filing the IRS Form 5500 EZ. So let's pause there for a moment. He didn't specifically say this, but uh, I'm I'm almost certain what this is in reference to. So. Smitty, I'll assume, is referring to a solo 401k, sometimes known as individual 401k. This is where if you are self-employed and you're the only employee, I believe there's an exception where if your spouse is part of the business with you, but you can't have any other employees. If you are the sole employee, you can open up a 401k for you slash your business and you can fund that and you can do it with traditional pre-tax money like, like you know, many most 401ks or all 401ks offer. Or you can also set up a Roth version or a Roth sort of sub version of that 401k where you can make Roth contributions. So why would someone do this? Well, if, if you uh, have earned income, you can save money in a retirement focused qualified account such as an IRA, but the contribution limits are tiny. They're only uh, for 2024. It's like 7,000 bucks maybe plus a catch up. Uh, hold that thought. I have this here somewhere. Yeah, $7,000 plus $1,000 extra if you're 50 or older by the end of the year. With a 401k, just like those that work at large employers that have a 401k, the the amount you can contribute as employee is $23,000 for 2024 plus an extra $7,500 if you're 50 or older by the end of the year. But there's also the employer contribution. When combining the employee plus employer contribution for 2024, the total amount that can be put into a 401k is $69,000 plus the $7,500 if you're 50 or older, that's a lot of money. So if you're looking to to pack away a lot of investable money in a retirement savings account and you're self-employed, a solo 401k could be a a good way to go about it. So um, I'm assuming that that's what you mean, because you also go on to, to reference form 5500EZ, which is an IRS filing you have to make under certain conditions. I will discuss those conditions in a moment. So he goes on to say, by the end of 2022, my 401k balance was reduced uh, he started by saying my balance increased above 250,000 and he was filing form 5500-EZ. By the end of 2022, my 401k balance was reduced below 200,000. By the end of 2023, this balance went to 0 with my final Roth conversion. Being my 401k balance never touched 250,000 or above in 2023, I assumed I wasn't required to file IRS form 50, 5500-EZ anymore. But my tax guy says I still need to file the form one last time. Can you confirm to me if it's necessary to file IRS form 5500EZ? Thanks, Smitty from The Villages. All right, let's 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 start breaking this down. So a solo 401k is fairly straightforward. Again, you have to be uh, self-employed and be like the, the only employee other than your spouse, perhaps. Fairly straightforward, high contribution limits. Not a lot of reporting or administrative work. It is more difficult to set up than an IRA. There is a, You do have to formally establish a 401k plan, which will require a formal uh, doc, document of the plans, rules, and policies and stuff. Now, practically speaking, all the places out there that, that uh, help set up solo 401ks will have what they call a template or a prototype agreement that you just basically rip off and use. And frankly, most people probably don't even read it, which isn't the right answer, but it's likely what happens. And then you have to open an account somewhere at a typical brokerage like a Fidelity or a Vanguard or what have you that holds the financial part. You know, the the investments of your 401k, uh, that's sort of the investment component of the 401k plan, but you still need to establish the plan. So I don't want to get too off track on this. Also, I'm not a small business retirement plan expert. I I had a solo 401k myself. I did terminate it when when I hired someone because I was no longer a solo. So I'm familiar with this uh, to some extent. I'm not an expert in it. And generally speaking, in my business, I stay away from business planning and small business retirement plans because it's a whole other area of expertise I know I don't have, nor do I want to try to get it. So I, I stay away from it. But I do happen to know a decent amount about Solo 401ks and four hundred and fifty five hundred All right, so um, a few things to know. Once the plan is set up, Again, there's the initial filing. You have to have a plan, document, on file, et cetera. You have to open the account to hold the assets. Once the plan is set up, relatively straightforward. You make contributions, again, up to the annual limit, whatever the limit is for you and your age, uh, also limited by the amount of income you have from your business that can also constrain your, your contributions. But all that aside, you put the money in, you invest it however you choose to invest it you can, depending where you open your plan up, you can invest in, uh, you know, almost sky's the limit for options. Just like having an IRA, you can invest in all the same stuff, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, whatever. It's not, and you don't have to do any special filings in the normal course of business until, until your solo 401k reaches $250,000 in balance. Now, uh, I'm fairly certain it's only if at the end of your plan year, the balance is 250. It's not if, the, if it reaches 250 at any time. So for example, uh, and this is another thing you have to set up when you establish a solo plan, you have to pick a plan year, like like a ending date. Generally speaking, most people just do calendar year. So the plan year is going to end at the end of December. But for whatever reason, you can do a different year if you want to. You probably won't, but you know, just know that you can. So I'm going to assume you're using December 31st end of year plan. So for purposes of... Uh, measuring if and when your account reaches $250,000, you have to look at December 31st balance of the plan. If it's below $250,000, my reading of the instructions to form 5500EZ is that you do not have to file for that year, even if it reached 250 some point during the year. But if it is over 250, then um, you you will, and it might be technically 250 and above, not just over 250, uh, then you will have to file this form 5500EZ. Now it's not Terribly difficult to do if you're not familiar with with taxes and forms. It could be complicated. You may want to try to find an accountant that does it. Now, any run of the mill tax preparer may not. This may require a bit of specialization uh, on someone's behalf that that does know these forms and how to do them. So don't just expect you know if you've got a tax guy, he or she might not really know the rules around this or or um, be comfortable filling it out. So, but as a whole, the forms fairly straightforward. You fill out. The, the name of the plan, when it was established, who the administrator is, which might be you, might be a third party that you use, uh, what the plan balance was, I think number of employees is also on there, and a couple other things, a few other descriptive sort of labels you have to give it. And then you, you file that with the IRS. You can send that in, in paper form, or there's a system called EFAST2, E-F-A-S-T-2. It's some sort of acronym, I don't know what it is. You can generally do it either way. And and that's what you do. And you have to file it within seven months of the end of your plan year. So, again, assuming you have a December 31st plan year, you'll have to file your 5,500 EZ by the end of July following the end of that year. So, it sounds like Smitty's already got that figured out and and did that along the way. The question now was he was converting money out of his Roth I'm sorry, his uh, solo 401k into his Roth IRA such that at some point during 2023, the, the solo 401k went down to a balance of zero. Smitty thought he was cool, didn't have to file anything else. His quote unquote tax guy uh, gave him a different opinion. So, Smitty's asking me, what, what do I believe the right answer is? So, um, Smitty, I, I'm not 100% certain. When, I think here's what your tax guy was getting at. In addition to having to file the 5,500 EZ anytime your plan is more than 250 grand as of the end of your plan year, you also have to file when you terminate your plan. Now, the question for you is going to be, did you terminate your plan or you just simply brought its balance down to zero and aren't currently contributing to it? Maybe you will in the future, maybe you won't, but you didn't formally terminate or rip up the plan. You didn't close the account, you didn't close your business, etc. Then I would say you did not terminate it, in which case you do not yet have to file another $5,500 EZ. If and when you do formally terminate it, you will then have to file a final 5500 EZ. Specifically, here's a here's a gotcha some people don't know about. Whenever you terminate it, you have to file seven months after terminating it, not seven months after the end of the year in which you terminated it. So if you terminate your plan February 28th, let's say, even though your plan year was December 31st, normally you ended it February 28th. You now have to file that final 5500 EZ seven months after February 28th, which takes us to what? That's going to be end of September. To two plus, yeah, end of September. So keep that in mind. So that's my question to you, I guess, is did you terminate your plan? Now, here's where it gets tricky. Um, Let's say you, you formally stopped your business. You no longer operate your business. There's no more income coming in, no more revenue. You have no plans to restart the business. But you didn't formally close the account, your 401k, wherever it was. I would argue your plan is terminated because without there being a business beneath it or a business uh, along which the 401k is attached to, I don't think you can really have a solo 401k at that point. There's no business behind it, right? So if you close the business or stop the business, I, my view is by default, you did terminate the 401k and therefore would have to file within seven months. Uh, so, so that that's the best I can answer that. Now, here's some other things to keep in mind for those that don't know. The failure to file 5500EZ 5, on time has really steep, ridiculously steep penalties a day beyond the filing deadline. If you, you know, if you don't, if you're supposed to file and don't, the penalty is $250 a day up to $150,000 max penalty per year that you, that you miss it. So do the math. If you terminate your plan five years ago, you never filed your final 5,500 EZ in theory, you have five years of penalties that you can slap you with at one hundred and fifty grand a year, that's what? That's seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in penalties the IRS can hit you with. Crazy punitive. Now in reality, I believe that they often don't um, enforce this. They may not even know that your plan was terminated. And uh, I mean, don't rely on that. That's just that's my speculation. But there is a formal late penalty filing relief program where if you catch your error in not filing prior to the IRS catching it, and notifying you, you can basically get out of jail free for a single sum of $500. You can say, oops, uh, I realized I should have filed uh, You know, last year. I didn't for whatever reason. You got to write them a letter. There's a formal uh, form you have to attach to it. Oops, I didn't file. Here's $500. Please excuse me. Uh, send it in and, and then you're done. It's just an administrative, you know, pay them and, and you're off the hook and everything's good. Uh, I have come across that personally a couple of times and, and that's what we did. We did these, uh, late, late filing penalty relief things. Um, so that's that. Anyway, uh, I'll stop there cause I suspect this won't apply to most people, but those that do have solo 401ks, you very much, uh, need to be aware of 5,500 easy and the rules around it, especially if you are self-administering, it's on you to know this stuff, unfortunately. If you use a third-party administrator, they should generally do all this for you, and it should be pretty seamless. But if you self-administer, which is often the case with people who open solo 401ks, uh, you have to know this stuff because it could be ugly if you don't. All right, great question, Smitty. Thank you very much. Moving on next is a question from Frank. And this was in response to uh, to my firm's newsletter in December. For those that don't yet subscribe, first of all, why not? Just kidding. Not really. Secondly, you can subscribe. Uh, It is free. It comes out the first of every month like clockwork at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And I uh, never solicit, never use that distribution list to solicit. It's only to send out this monthly newsletter. Uh, Ask anyone who gets this newsletter. They they will attest that I've never once tried to pitch or sell anything to people on it. So if you're not subscribed, feel free to go ahead. There is a link in the notes to this show. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced you will thoroughly enjoy it. Anyway, so this was in response to the December 2023 newsletter where I wrote a little bit about tax gain harvesting. And uh, Frank's email says – he quotes from the newsletter where I said, Tax gain harvesting is when you sell a position to intentionally recognize that gain in the current tax year. One of the more common and beneficial applications of tax gain harvesting is for people with otherwise really low income where they can realize some long-term capital gains – i.e. gains on positions held more than 12 months at a federal tax rate of zero, end quote. Frank then says, if one did not need the money, would it make sense during a low-income year to sell a long-held ETF, exchange-traded fund, realize the gain, then reinvest back into same or like-kind investment? This would reset one's cost basis. All right, great question. And, and yes, uh, Frank, what you were asking, what you're alluding to is accurate tax gain harvesting. I'm going to do a video on this at some point because it gets, uh, excuse me, (coughs) tickle in my throat. Uh, This kind of needs to be done in visual format to fully explain the process of how long-term capital gains are taxed federally, not state, but federally, and how there's preferential tax rates potentially zero if the rest of your income is low enough. So it could open up some really good opportunities to uh, consciously sell And realize some of those gains when you can do so at a federal tax rate of zero. Uh, Just to throw a quick number at you, then I won't dig more because, again, this really needs a video to to do it justice. In 2024, if you are single, for example, and your taxable income, so this is your gross, I'm oversimplifying, but your gross income minus your standard deduction, let's say, if your taxable income is up to $47,025 dollars, any long-term capital gains within that $47,025 will be federally taxed at zero. And any long-term capital gains you may have beyond that will be taxed at 15 and then potentially 20 if, it's, if you have a lot of income. So anyway, so, uh, so if you have a low-income year, such as you stopped working, you don't have wages anymore, you haven't yet started Social Security, maybe you have a pension you didn't start yet, so you're just living off cash in the banks, so your only taxable income and your tax return is going to be bank interest maybe you have some dividends getting thrown off from a brokerage account and let's say that's it let's keep it super simple so you are in a super super low income year yes you can take advantage of this tax gain harvesting where you have positions in your brokerage account that are appreciated in value you know the prices are higher than when you bought them so if and when you sell them there's going to be taxable gains but you can you can realize some of those gains now and do so while you're in this low income year and in these 0% federal long-term capital gains bracket. So the opportunity is, uh, and and Frank pointed out, what if you don't need the money to live on? So let's assume you're living off cash in the banks. So the question may be, why would I sell something if I don't need the money? Well, to, to do so tax efficiently, you can pay zero tax now, or if you don't, you may have to pay something greater than zero in the future. So Frank mentioned resetting one cost basis. So the example would be, let's just assume you bought a fund 10 years ago for a total of $100, let's say. And now that value of that fund is $180. You have a hundred, let's, let's, let's up the numbers a little bit. Um, you bought it for uh, $50,000, let's say, and now the value is $60,000. I'm just making these up as you can tell. So you have an unrealized gain of $10,000. If you were to sell this, you're going to have to uh, include that $10,000 of gain into your tax return, and it will be potentially taxable. In this particular year, as I mentioned, you have virtually no income. Let's say you've got a few thousand bucks of bank interest and that's it. You have lots of room in the 0% federal tax bracket where you can realize this gain. So let's say you sell the entirety of the position, all $60,000 worth. Once you sell it, you immediately realize that $10,000 of gain on your original $50,000 position. A $10,000 will be reported on your tax return. But let's assume you like the position, you want to continue holding it. You don't want to actually sell it and get rid of it. Once you sell it for 60 grand, you can turn around and immediately buy it seconds later for $60,000. So at the, all said and done, you still have the same position, still worth the same amount. All you did was you took some of that, well, not some of it, but all of it in this example, you took the $10,000 of unrealized gain off the table and realized it. And because of your low income year, you did so such that your federal tax rate on that $10,000 will be zero. Good for you. You just you just tax gain harvest. Now, side note: this is just federal taxes we're talking about. State taxes could be very different. If you are if you are in a state that has income tax, which is most of them, um, chances are they don't have this zero percent bracket. Generally speaking, most states that have income tax tax capital gains as regular income at, at whatever the rate is three, four, five, six, seven percent, whatever your state income tax rate is. So always pay attention to state taxes because um, because they could pop up and surprise you potentially. But yeah, so, so that great question, uh, observation, Frank, that's exactly what tax gain harvesting is and you use the term resetting one's basis. So basis is just the, the, the cost of the price at which you bought something. In our example, it was originally 50, you had a 10000 50000 you had a $10,000 unrealized gain, current value of 60. You sold it for 60, turn around, immediately you bought it for 60. So your basis now going forward is, is $60,000. So if and when you ever sell this position in the future, you'll only be taxed on the gain above and beyond 60. Because remember, you took the original $10,000 gain off the table, realized it this year, and did so while paying zero federal tax on it. Uh, Big win. Good job. So that was Frank's first question. Frank has another question. Uh, He says, uh, uh, here we go. Many are going to online banks for higher returns. When checking out these banks, some are not all that financially healthy. As one might suspect, the ones offering the very high interest rates. Given that they are all FDIC insured, does the bank's financial health really matter? Question mark. Worst case, bank fails, you get your money back. If getting one's money back is long and painful, then uh, I'm sorry, that would give one pause. If the FDIC is quick, then not a concern. Um, so, yes, a few things going on here. So, generally speaking, when you have money in banks, if you have a regular checking account, the interest you get is squat or close to squat. If you have a normal savings account at a bank, the interest is also generally squat or close to squat. If you have a high-yield savings account, as they're typically called, the interest can be pretty good. Currently, as of the recording of this podcast in mid-January 2024, high-yield savings accounts at large banks everyone's heard of, like Ally, Marcus, Capital One, are currently paying 43 to 4.4% interest. Now, that can change any given time, and it has changed over time. Uh, it was really low. It's gone up, and it's going to trend back down, it looks like now. But that's pretty good. Now, those are names everyone's heard of uh, that that I think most people will be comfortable having money in. But if you really look, you can find some banks that you've probably never heard of that are paying higher interest in savings accounts, maybe four and a half, maybe even 5%, give or take uh, as of today. So the question may be, well, I never heard of it. Are they a fly-by-night shop that my money's going to disappear? Well, so long as they are FDIC insured, and FDIC stands for Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or Company, which uh, generally provides up to $250,000 of, of federal insurance slash backing in case a bank fails. That's $250,000 per person. So you have a joint account between you and your spouse. Let's say you have $500,000 of coverage at that bank, two hundred fifty dollars for each you and your spouse. So if the institution fails, FDIC steps in, covers you. Um, I frankly don't know how long the, the the process is for FDIC to take over and pay out bank accounts, but let's just assume it's quick. And so that, that's, that's a non-issue. Um, then, then I wouldn't let the credit risk of the bank uh, necessarily stop you um, uh, where oh, this Frank, I'm sorry, Frank. Um, what, what I would consider is things like the app, you know, the, the online interface, the mobile app, the customer service, because all these transactions are going to be done online through your computer, or through your phone. And if they're not easy, if they're not streamlined, if they're clunky, if the customer service is bad, if you have a question, those are things you probably want to stay away from um i mean i guess if interest is high enough you can you can kind of put up with anything but let's assume the interest isn't substantially higher than than the you know the the brand name high yield savings accounts i'd say probably stick with the, the biggest ones that have good reputations have been been around a while uh you know customer service is good online interface is well ironed out and, and smooth etc that's more how i'd gauge it you know again assuming everything everything's FDIC insured it then comes down to the other things I just mentioned. If something's not FDIC insured, stay away. You know, do not put money in a bank that's not FDIC insured. No matter how high of a teaser rate they're trying to give you to get your business, um, that's just potentially asking for trouble. So, uh, but you know, I, the, the nature of your question is, is, is FDIC resolution and payout process efficient or quick? I, I frankly don't know, um, Frank. It's probably not overnight. I mean, I don't know. I doubt it's going to be months either. Let's assume it's maybe a week or two. But again, I really don't know. I guess it would be good to know, like, uh, what was it? Silicon Valley Bank and SV, um, was it First Something, First Republic, First Capital, First whatever, that failed last year the year before? There'd probably be a good case study to figure out what was the process uh, for FGSE taking them over. Anyway, that was Frank's questions. Thank you for that, Frank. Next Uh, this is a big one of multiple parts. So yeah, this might be the last one. This is from Dave. Um, let's see now. So I'm gonna read you what Dave wrote, and then there's a few things in here to address. I think a lot of you will get a lot out of. I'm sure a lot of you have the same sort of question. So the background: Um, I'm 62 and will retire in the next few years. I like appreciate my job and have a good work life balance. The company recently split up. As part of the split, my 401k was frozen and I was rehired by the new legal entity. So all good. And I suddenly had investing opportunities and options. I guess he's saying in the new one, uh, more options than he had in the old one. This This motivated me to take a hard look at my 401k. I had been putting my savings in a target fund and just forgetting about it. I believe the fixed income portion was bond funds. The performance of bond fund options in the 401k was negative to say 1% over the last 10 years. The target fund performance appeared to be weighed, appeared to be the weighted average of the stock index funds and the bond funds with the bond funds weighing down the performance. So I'll stop there for now. Uh, I'm going to do a full episode on target date funds. If I can get my act together, it'll be next week because I, I want to make sure I do some more research and, and do justice to this topic. If I don't get my act together, it'll be uh, in another some other months episode. But I I will do a full ditty on target date funds. Super high level nutshell for now is that a target date fund is in effect a mutual fund or ETF, not technically ETF, but loosely similar. Where instead of you having to pick different stock funds and bond funds to your suiting and, and you know whatever you choose, you instead just pick one single fund where it does the split for you between underlying stock and bond funds. And they're called target date funds because you select a date, it'll be quoted as a year. Generally, they go in increments of five years. You select a year that you plan on retiring or thereabouts. Based on that year, it does the easy math to know how far away is it from now. And then that's what it uses to determine your stock to bond allocation. All else equal, the further away, the target date of the retirement you select, the more aggressive, meaning the more stock exposure, there will be in this target date fund. And as you sit in the fund over time and that target year, that target date of retirement approaches, the fund will automatically rebalance and dial down the aggressiveness, you know, dial down the stock exposure and replace it with an a ever-increasing amount of bond fund or even cash uh, exposure within that fund. So that's a target date fund. It's often called sort of a set it and forget it. Uh, it has its pros, has its cons. Again, I'll I'll dig into that more in another episode because someone did specifically ask me to do a, to do a full thing about that. So then, uh, Dave goes on. I understand the fed rate was very low for many years over the last decade. I also understand why a bond fund can go negative, but that said, I don't feel entirely comfortable having my fixed income investment in something that can go negative at the same time as stocks and pause. Um, Yeah. I should probably do another episode on this, but I I, I did do episodes on bonds and bond funds. I also did a YouTube video on it. I'll try to link that to the the notes of this show if I remember to do so. But bond funds historically have done really well as there has been a structural, fairly steady decrease in interest rates over the last few decades. And all else equal, as interest rates decline, bond prices go up and vice versa. So prior to 2022, interest rates went down a lot uh, over time. Even in 2019, and, I'm sorry, 2020, and 2021, interest rates went down pretty substantial amounts such that bond funds, depending on what type of fund you were in, went up a lot. So, for example, the, the uh, total US total bond market funds went up, I think it was like 16, 17% combined between um, 2020 and 2021. I'm sorry, no, 2019, 2020. I think they were flat to down a little in 2021. Um, and then 2022, we're down a lot. U S total bond market was down, I think 13% in, uh, 2022, and it was up a few percent last year, 2023. So, so Dave's saying, I don't know that I'm cool with that. Like, yeah, bond, bond funds had decent returns, you know, mid single digit returns, give or take for most of recent history, but then they get absolutely slapped in 2022 with it, with a down 13% year that kind of wiped away or was it more than that was 16? I think it was 13. Um, wiped away a lot of what it had done in prior years and uh to add insult to injury not only was total bond market down 13 ish percent in 2022 but the stock markets were down a lot s&p was down 18 percent, i think or uh, give or take a percent i could be wrong other other uh, measures of stock market were down even more small and mid-sized stocks u.s stocks were down even more than that i think something close to 30 percent, perhaps so everything was down at the same time and dave's view is like i'm not comfortable with that going forward i thought bonds were supposed to offset stocks historically they have But things could disjoint, especially as it did in 2022, where there was really nothing making money other than just sitting in cash uh, because stocks were down and bonds were down and bonds were down because interest rates shot up a lot from the Federal Reserve trying to tamp down inflation. Their main tool they have to do that is to raise short-term interest rates to basically make the cost of borrowing money, cost of loans more expensive, to slow down People buying things uh, on credit, whether it's companies or individuals, to help slow down buying and uh, you know help cool inflation. So that's why bond funds shot, uh, dropped in price in 2022 because interest rates shot up so much. Now that trend is starting to reverse, so the, the, the funds may come back around. Hold that thought. Uh, Dave goes on. Now that my 401k has been rolled over to an IRA and Roth IRA, I have options. My fixed income portion is presently in treasuries, individual treasury securities, with the rolling maturity dates. A fixed income balance is presently selected to be enough to cover three plus years of retirement withdrawals to weather market downturn with the rest being stocks. There's a lot of stuff I got fun with on this one, but let, let, let me address that for a moment. So what Dave's uh, referencing here is, is the bucketing idea. He has his next three years of anticipated portfolio withdrawal needs in individual treasury bonds and individual bonds, especially treasury bonds, won't lose value if you hold them until they mature. You know exactly what you're going to get in interest every year, and you know exactly what you're going to get when they mature or self-terminate, be it one year, two year, three year, whatever length of bond you choose. That's different than bond funds. Bond funds don't have a state of maturity date. They don't end. They are perpetual, and their their prices don't necessarily have to come back up or go back down or whatever. They, they can always sort of bounce around, whereas individual bonds, you know the price will eventually have to result in the uh, face value or par value of the bond which is typically a thousand dollars per bond so anyway so dave's saying he has his next few years in, in individual bonds and for his expense needs beyond that it's in stocks so he's talking about bucketing so and the gist of here is that no matter how bad the stock market may do over the next two three years dave won't need to sell his stocks at the press prices because he has individual treasuries that he knows with certainty what they're going to throw off and when so good concept Uh, the bucketing Uh, um, it helps address what's called sequence of return risks and and the fact that you know if if stocks are down you don't want to have to sell them when they're depressed because then you have less shares to eventually rebound when they do rebound and in in general the idea of bucketing does make sense and then if and when stocks are doing good as opposed to bad instead of selling your bonds you can sell off some of your stocks take some of your gains off the table use that to uh to, to i just had a ding i don't know if you heard that but i had a pop up on my computer i thought i closed anyway sorry moving on So when, when stocks are good, you can trim off some of those for your cash needs, as opposed to selling your bonds. So that's bucketing. The concern is, and and this is sort of far flung, but possible. If you have three years of expense, let's just assume only three years of expenses covered in, in bonds that are going to mature. What happens if stocks have a bad four years or five years, Uh, you know, not common, but, uh, hypothetically possible in that case, you won't have sold any stocks along the first three years because you were just living off your bonds, waiting for your stocks to recover. At the end of three years, let's say you're out of bonds, you know, you depleted your, your near term bucket or safe assets. Now you're forced to tap stocks from four years, you know, for year four, year five. And you're going to do so when they're their most depressed or probably close to the most depressed because they've been down for three straight years. So now you're actually in a worse position. Had you actually sold some stocks off in the first three years when they were relatively higher prices. You'd be better off than waiting to have depleted your safe assets to now be forced to take stocks. That's all you have left when they're their most beaten up. So that, that's sort of one of my um, uh, criticisms of the conventional bucketing thing is it's really hard to implement in practice. It needs to be super, super methodical and ironed out. And it's not bulletproof unless you have, I don't know, a five-year, 10-year bucket of cash or really safe assets stocks could be bad potentially for four or five years again historically hard to find an example of that but but you know anything's possible so anyway so that's my thoughts on bucketing but i just thought i'd throw that out there because because dave mentioned the concept of bucketing uh moving on he says so looking back say 10 years we have seen variable interest rates and market volatility looking forward i can reasonably expect the same I, i agree with that dave the federal reserve is hoping to reduce rates over the upcoming years What strategies, options, balances should be considered for the fixed income portion of the portfolio looking forward? While I understand why bond funds are a viable option, given the performance I see, and I think I understand, for the last decade, I'm hesitant to hold them. Seems, at least short term, there are secure options with better returns. Long term, say 5 to 10 plus years. Dumb look, pondering, uh, dot, dot, dot. I know I will need to rely on the fixed income portion of my portfolio to weather an upcoming market downturn. Hope my rambling made sense. Looking forward to dad jokes. I'll likely reuse them on my 33-year-old daughter for the response. She still grimaces every time. That's what dad jokes are all about, Dave. It's the grimace from the uh, from the audience. Uh, all right. A lot of good things to, to also dig into in this last paragraph. So you say, yes, there will be variability with market returns and interest rates going forward. There always will be. There always was There always will be. That's nothing different. What strategies, options, balances should be considered for the fixed income portion of the portfolio going forward? um that's a good one so you then go on to say given the recent 10-year performance you don't have a rosy feeling about bonds and bond well bond funds in particular to which i'd say true last 10-year returns have been roughly flat for bond funds especially specifically like the u.s total bond market that's largely because 2022 was such a bad year 2023 was was i'm sorry um 2019, 2020 were good years. 2021 was slightly down. 2022 was really down. 2023 was up a little. The years before all that, it kind of bounced around low to mid single digits on average. So looking back, yeah, it's not great. But what happened was it was really 2022's return is like destroying the five year, 10 year average on this and making it look like garbage. And I mean, I'm not saying that's not true. Over the last 10 years, they, they've basically done a whole lot of nothing, but largely because there was that like anomaly of a year that, that really crushed them. Now, similar concept with like stock funds or any investment manager, they live and die by their recent returns. And when a manager has a good year, whether it's luck or whatever, that good year will float them and carry them and make their rolling three-year, five-year, 10-year returns look that much better because they have that one good outlier year that really drag or brings up the averages. When most of the years may not have been anything special or they were below their benchmark, for example, uh, when you have one good pop, it's like, oh yeah, that redeemed me for a while. Now, eventually your rolling returns, whether you look back two years, five years, whatever, that good year is going to roll off and you might be back to just, eh, you know, uh, substandard, nothing special returns. The same works the other way. A fund such as like a total bond market fund could have done relatively well for a, for a fairly long time and that have one really bad year as it did in 2022. And that just, you, you blend that into the five-year, 10-year average and it just, it just crushes it. So anyway, so I wouldn't get point is I want to get too hung up. Yes. 2022 was bad. I think that was uh, hopefully an anomaly. It's, it wasn't for what, 40, 50 years or something like that, that there was that much increase in interest rates in that short time period. That's what happened to bond funds in 2022. Vast majority of years that, that, level of intensity of interest rate movements uh, isn't going to happen. So anyway, so going forward, now, objectively speaking, now is a better time to buy and have bond funds than it was two years ago. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, obviously. But why do I say that? Well, a few years ago, interest rates were already bumping near zero. There wasn't much room for them to go down much. And recall I said before, as interest rates go down, bond prices go up and vice versa there wasn't a lot of meat on the bone left for rates to go down more because they're already around zero. So a few years ago, there wasn't a tremendous amount of upside on bond funds. Fast forward to now, the pain has been experienced. Rates rose a lot. Bond prices went down a lot, depending on the fund. But now, looking forward, we're in a better position. Not only are bond funds paying out higher interest to start with because interest rates have gone up, But there is now more room for rates to eventually be decreased again going forward, which the Fed has signaled they're likely to do this year, 2024. So bond funds could start to produce some uh, better returns. So what I'm saying is don't write off bond funds. Yes, 2022 is a punch in the mouth uh, by by many standards. But like any investment, don't just look at the past. And if you do look at the past, you have to try to understand what happened. In the case of bond funds, we know what happened. Interest rates shot up a lot to try to quell inflation. But with any investment, look at going forward. What can this do for me? Where does this fit? Does this make sense going forward? I would argue bond funds still make a lot of sense for a lot of people for the uh, some or all the fixed income allocation of their portfolio. Again, more so now than it did two years ago. So uh, I wouldn't give up on bond funds, Dave. But you're saying, at least in the short term, there are secure options with better returns. And I know what you're referencing. That is where you can buy individual treasury bills which are treasury securities that mature in a year or less that have rates currently depending what maturity again as of this recording a little over five percent like 5.3 maybe 5.4 percent for some of the shorter maturity stuff that are guaranteed if you buy and hold to maturity you will get that five point whatever percent or even money market mutual funds currently paying most of them a lot of them paying over five percent like 5.2 percent give or take which that's not guaranteed to last forever, but so long as you have it and it's paying that rate, that's what you're going to get. So you're saying, if I could get a guaranteed 5%, albeit only for a short period, three months, six months, et cetera, um, why would I mess around with the bond fund when I can get this guaranteed 5%? To which I say, yeah, fair point. And, and I think there definitely is room and is a place in portfolios, get, while the getting's good, where you can get this guaranteed five plus percent. That's not going to last forever. Uh, really strong chance the Federal Reserve starts to decrease short-term rates. They've already signaled that's their intention this year. When they do, rates on new treasury bills will decline. Rates on money market mutual funds will start to decline. How far they'll decline? I don't know, but uh, expect they will decline. At that point, these, uh, you know, five plus percent interest rates on short-term things probably won't be around. Maybe it'll drop to four or three or who knows, you know, going back two, three years ago, uh, rates were darn near zero. Like, 0.05, 0.1% was the interest you'd get on treasury bills and money market mutual funds. So I'm hoping we don't get back there, but point is that there's lots of room for short-term rates to drop. Anyway, so here's the pickle. Yes, you can get a guaranteed 5% now for short-term, you know, handful of months, six months, whatever, which is great, but don't expect that to last. And when your current six-month treasury bill matures, Dave, what if interest rates drop a lot? between now and then. So now when you have to go reinvest that money from that maturing bill, where are you going to put it? You know, new six-month bills at the time may only be, I'm just making this up, 3%. Still not nothing to laugh at, but not nearly as good as 5%. Here's what's going to happen. Bond funds, just like they go down in price when interest rates went up, again, looking at what happened in 2022, the opposite happens. They go up in price when interest rates go down. So here's sort of the the guess, the uh, bet, if you will, you have to make now, Dave, if you think interest rates are going to trend down, yes, you still may be able to get you know five plus percent currently on short-term stuff, but it won't last forever. Then you have to reinvest at something lower or bond funds. Now, their prices will go up. You know, if you hold one now, the prices will go up all else equal if and when the Federal Reserve does start to decrease interest rates in, in the near term. So uh, I can make the argument that even though you can get a guaranteed 5.2% on uh, in treasury bills now. What if, and it's quite possible, that instead, if you just own a a total bond market fund, you can actually end up getting more than that over the next year, depending how far the Federal Reserve starts to drop interest rates. Again, no guarantees, and who knows what's going to happen, but it is very hypothetically possible. So that's the decision you have to make with yourself. Um, Like I said, don't get rid of bond funds. they still have a place. If when interest rates decline, you'll be glad you have bond funds if you do. And, uh, you know, but the challenge is the short-term stuff, treasury bills, money market funds, paying over 5%, it's hard to say no to that. So my view is kind of take a blend of the two or just pick one and run with it, realize the risks and the pros and the cons of each. I'm not saying either one is the right answer. You know, the future will tell what was right and when, but the best we can do now is just know what could impact these things going forward. What you think personally, the chances are those happening, which we have to admit is all just speculation and guessing. And, and then and then just pick accordingly and go with it. The worst thing you can do, well, not the worst, but uh, you know a not good thing to do is try to guess and speculate and flip-flop your strategy and approach based on your whims or what you think the Fed might do. No, pick it now, stick to it. Because otherwise, once you start interjecting, guessing and speculation and changing your plan, now you're doing nothing more than market timing and, and market timing rarely works out well for folks. So that wasn't a concise answer. But I I think in in my sort of ramblings, Dave, that hopefully the uh, points got across that you should consider and not just you, but everyone else should take into consideration when figuring out what to do with bonds, bond funds, and the fixed income portions of their portfolios. It's not an easy answer or analysis to do. And again, without the benefit of a working crystal ball, we frankly don't know what the right or or the best uh, thing is going to be. Is it continue to hold short-term treasury bills or is it hold a a, total bond market fund? where uh, there's a good chance its price could have a nice little pop if and when the Fed changes course from you know its rate rising and now starts to decrease them. So that's it. I will stop. It's already well, it's been about 45 minutes, I guess. So I will hold the other questions I had for another episode. As always, thank you to everyone that wrote in questions. If you do have questions you'd like addressed, uh, so you can email them to andy at com. And if you haven't already, please definitely uh, write a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you uh, get your podcast fix. And check out the Facebook group if you haven't, which is also the same name as this podcast, Retirement Planning Education, and the YouTube video by the same name, Retirement Planning Education. You can find links to all those things and notes to this episode and my my company's newsletter retirement planning insights. You can find a link to that. If you uh, have not subscribed, you definitely should. Again, I promise I will not use that to solicit or market stuff to you all. That's that. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you.